This is our final message on uh, this series uh, on Genesis 1 through 11. Um, the name of this series was In the Beginning. Uh, I hadn't used the name very much, but that is what I was calling it. But uh, it's basically been sermons. This is the 37th sermon on Genesis 1 through 11. So uh, it's been a, I hope it's been a good series for you, though. I hope you've learned a lot. I hope it's been encouraging. We've gotten to talk about a lot of different things in this series. I mean, the, 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 these first 11 chapters are packed full of, uh, of information and, uh, and, and good, godly truth. Sherwood, am I on good? Can you hear me now? All right, good. Making sure we were, we were on good. All right, well, let me begin reading for us in uh, Genesis chapter 11 and uh, verse 1. Beginning in Genesis chapter 11 and uh, verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. These are the generations of Shem. When Shem was a hundred years old, he fathered Arpachshad two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he fathered Arpachshad five hundred years and had other sons and daughters. When Arpachshad had lived thirty-five years, he fathered Shelah, and Arpachshad lived after he fathered Shelah 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived 30 years, he fathered Eber. And Shelah lived after he fathered Eber 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Eber had lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg. Eber lived after he fathered Peleg 430 years and had other sons and daughters. When Peleg had lived 30 years, he fathered Ru. And Peleg lived after he fathered Ru 209 years and had other sons and daughters. And when Ru had lived 32 years, he fathered Serug. And Ru lived after he fathered Serug 207 years and had other sons and daughters. When Serug had lived 30 years, he fathered Naor. And Serug lived after he fathered Naor 200 years and had other sons and daughters. And when Naor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah. And Naor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years and had other sons and daughters. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Naor, and Haran. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Naor, Naor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Naor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarah, and the name of Naor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarah was barren. She had no child. 
Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran, and his grandson, and Sarah his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forward together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. And the days of Terah were two hundred and five years, and Terah died in Haran. When we come to Genesis 11, verse 1, it's pretty clear that we're moving back in time. Uh, we saw in Genesis 10, last Sunday night, how the sons of Noah multiplied, how humanity dispersed throughout the earth, becoming various nations with their own languages and their own ethnic cultures. And, and yet we get to verse 1 of chapter 11, after reading Genesis 10, and we read this, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And so it's pretty clear that what's happening here is we're being moved back in time in order for God to reveal to us the pivotal event that helped spark this great dispersion of humanity. Now, when did this happen? When did this Tower of Babel incident take place? Well, look with me back at Genesis 10, verse 25. Genesis 10, verse 25, we read of to Eber... Remember, that's the Hebrew word for Hebrew. So to Hebrew, were born two sons, and the name of one was Peleg, and that's the one we're interested in. His name means division. And look at why he was given the name division. For in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. Now, we could be wrong. It could be referring to some kind of a civil war. It could be referring to... Uh, we, we, we aren't positive, but many scholars think it is likely that Peleg was given this name because during the life of his father, before his birth, uh, Eber experienced uh, the Tower of Babel incident. And so it was during the life of Eber, in the days of Peleg's birth, that the Tower of Babel incident occurred. That seems to be, we think, when it happened. Now, when we look at Genesis 11 and that genealogy I just went through, we learn that Peleg was Shem's great-great-grandson. Uh, we learn in chapter... Remember, Shem was on the ark. He was Noah's son. We learn that Shem fathered Arpachshad two years after the flood. That Arpachshad fathered Shelah when he was 35, Shelah fathered Eber when he was 30, and Eber fathered Peleg when he was 34. If you put all that together, and if we're right, and the Tower of Babel incident happened sooner around the time of Peleg's birth, then this happened about a century after uh, Noah and his family left the ark. So if we're right about that, we're looking at around 100 years have passed uh, when we come to the Tower of Babel incident. In Genesis 1, verse 2, we are told that people migrated from the east until they found a plain. Um, this is a really difficult phrase in the Hebrew because it can be translated from the east or it can be translated towards the east. And uh, even though the ESV and most translations do choose from the east... Uh, interestingly, in every commentary I looked at, they said they thought it should be translated to the east. And uh, they had several reasons for that. One is uh, the land of Shinar, Babylonia, where they go, is to the east of Canaan. It's to the even east of a um, Mount Ararat. And so whether they were coming from Mount Ararat or whether they were coming from the promised land, either way, it seems like they would have been going east. Uh, they would have had to have been out in the Orient in order to be traveling the other way, uh, from the east. And so uh, it probably is that they were traveling towards the east rather than from the east. And by the way, that's a bad omen because in Genesis and in the Old Testament, 
bad things tend to happen when you travel east. I don't know why that is. It's probably good you traveled west this time to come to us because for some reason bad things seem to happen when you travel towards the east. Well, if what I think probably is happening here is we're being told about Noah's family and those who have come from them in those first few generations. So in that first hundred years, as Noah's family grew, they began to migrate out of the mountains where they had landed with the ark and begin to move down into this land called Shinar, where they find this plain. Um, this plain that they find is between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. Um, It is a very fertile land. It's part of what's called the Fertile Crescent. Um, In school, you may have learned that the oldest known human civilization was a place called Mesopotamia. You ever heard of Mesopotamia? Well, this is a part of Mesopotamia. In fact, this seems to be the beginnings of Mesopotamian civilization. So here in Genesis 11, in these first two verses, appears to be the moment when Noah and his family and their children and grandchildren begin to leave the mountains and they move down into this fertile plain and settle in what we know as Mesopotamia. Uh, This is the beginning of post-flood civilization. Now, at the same time that this is happening, Peleg's cousin, that you may remember we've talked about, Nimrod. Remember us talking about Nimrod? Uh, This great hunter, this mighty warrior. Well, he is almost certainly alive. He may have been a leader in the erecting of the Tower of Babel. We're, We're not sure. A lot of scholars assume that that's the case, but we don't know that that's the case. What we do know is that this city that they're building, along with many other cities along Mesopotamia and up and along the Tigris rivers, are going to become a part of Nimrod's kingdom. He was the first real king, tyrant, uh, ruler of an empire, if you can call it that, uh, post-flood. And so uh, he was probably involved at least somewhat in this incident. Now in verses 3 and 4, we see that having settled on this plain, The people come together for a a tower-building enterprise. Um, We're told that they learn how to make bricks. And uh, that's important because uh, this will become a hallmark of of Mesopotamian structures. When you you go, when archaeologists go to Canaan and they look at ancient Israelite structures, they're almost always made out of stone. But when they move over to Mesopotamian structures, those of Babylon and Assyria, what they find is that theirs were made out of bricks. And we're told here that this happened during this time, that there was this discovery of how to make bricks, a technology we still use today. It's very, very ancient. And they begin this idea of building a tower and a city. Um, We're not told what this tower was supposed to look like. We're only told that that, that its top was supposed to be in the heavens. Um, most people think that this tower was meant to be what's called a ziggurat. So everybody say ziggurat. ziggurat. You may have learned about those in school. I'm not sure if you did. The Native Americans had them, or the, the Native Americans of Central America had them. And, uh, and, well, the Mesopotamians had them at well. Basically, a ziggurat is a kind of temple-like tower that begins with a big square first story, and then a smaller square second story, and then an even smaller square third story, and a smaller square fourth story, and on and on it goes up with these big stories of squares going up, and you get to each one via these steps that go outside the building. You don't get up to them inside, you get up to each story from the outside. Um, some of you have an ESV study Bible. There's a great picture of one of these in the ESV study Bible, so 
I might show it to you later if you want to see one. But, but we don't know that that's what it was, but that is the kind of towers we found throughout Mesopotamia, so we assume that perhaps this was one of those as well. Um, what was the purpose of this tower? Well, in verse 4, the people say, Come, let us build ourselves a city. Notice they're building a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So they chose to build a city and a tower. Uh, Most ancient cities were made up of the various dwelling places of the people of that city, but most cities also had a central temple, uh, a place of worship that united the citizens of that city. And that's probably what this was here. This tower was meant to be some kind of a, a temple. The question is, who was this temple for? All people are inherently religious. All people inherently worship something, but these people are clearly turning away from the true God. And so the question is, who were they building this temple to worship? One of the things we could note is that all false religions seem to be able to be traced back to Babylon. In fact, it has been noted for centuries that the gods of Egypt, the gods of India, the gods of Greece, the gods of Rome, all seem to have their origin in the Babylonian pantheon, that first big religion of Mesopotamia. Nimrod, the mighty warrior that we talked about, is later worshipped as the great mighty god Marduk of Babylon, the god who they credit with creating human beings to do his slave labor. Um, Others have noted that this tower is meant to reach up into the heavens, and they suggest that that means the tower was dedicated to the worship of the heavens. Uh, And they say that because in Babylonian literature we find lots of talk about the zodiac, uh, uh, astrology had its beginnings, it was birthed in Babylon. Martin Luther suggested centuries ago that the most important thing about the Tower of Babel was not its size, but the fact that it was being set forth as a place of worship. And uh, many people think that they might have been worshiping the stars or the zodiac, the formation of stars and planets. Um, The Bible condemns worshiping these things. It says that people who do so are unconsciously, unknowingly worshiping demons. Um, well, any of that may be the case. They may have, this may have been the beginning of worshiping the, the pantheon of various gods. This may have been a temple erected to, to worship the stars of the heavens. I, I don't know. But when we look at the text, what we find presented to us is that ultimately this tower of worship was being built by the people for themselves, to honor themselves, to praise and worship themselves. They say... Let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. And so selfish ambition and pride seem to be at play here. Rather than building a a temple tower to the true God and dedicating it to His glory, their desire seems to be to accomplish some kind of achievement by which their own name might be remembered and honored. And ultimately, these people in this city would receive a name that would be remembered, but it would not be the kind of name that they wanted. It would be the name Babel, confusion, muddled. Well, underneath all of this was the desire of the people to stay together. Underneath all of this was this inclination that they did not want to be dispersed. 
God had given them the command, fill the earth. But they did not want to fill the earth. They wanted to stay tight together. And so we read there in verse 4, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. The very thing God had commanded them to do is the very thing that they are fighting against and do not want to do. Perhaps the great flood from decades earlier still haunted them. So that maybe they thought they had better strength and more security in numbers. And and some even think that they were building this large tower because they were trying to get it high enough where if another flood came, they could somehow escape to safety. Um, Perhaps by working together, they had begun to see the things that they could accomplish together. And and they didn't want to give that up in order to obey God. Um, Perhaps they just trusted being around one another more than they trusted God. But whatever the reason... These people did not want to be dispersed. They wanted to stay together, and so they blatantly disobeyed God's command to spread out and fill the earth. Well, how does God respond to this? Well, in verse 5, we read, And the Lord, notice it uses all caps, and Yahweh came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. Now, obviously, God himself does not have to leave his throne and come down to earth in order to see what is happening here. Our God is everywhere. Our God sees all things. Our God knows all things. But this is an example of an anthropomorphism, of of talking about God in a human way. We find it throughout the Old Testament, in particular the early books of the Old Testament. And the phrase that is used is very important. Because here are people trying to erect a tower that's going to reach up into the heavens, and yet we're told here that God had to come down to see it. And so it's a comment on the futility of what these people were trying to do. Let them build the skyscraper as high as they can get it. God will still have to come down to see it because He is infinitely higher. Uh, We are puny and small before Him. He is higher and more exalted than us. He must come down to us if we are to know him and relate with him. Well, moreover, this supposedly great tower is now seen for what it really is. It's simply not that great. We might think of human achievements as being so wonderful. We can get caught up and, and look at what our hands have done. Look at the things we've been able to achieve. I mean, just consider one of these speed rail things, how they work. Consider the fact that we can get in an airplane and fly through the skies, right? Consider the we. I can sit there and look at a screen and move this controller and all this stuff happens. I mean, we, we can get excited about all of this human technology, and yet when we put it in perspective, hello, God spoke and... The Grand Canyon existed? It ought to humble us. It ought to make us remember that all we can do is little imitations of what God can do in such a grand and glorious way. And so when God has to come down to see the tower, it's, a, it's putting things in perspective. This is still merely a work of human hands. And to use another anthropomorphism, it would only take a little flick of God's pinky and it would fall to the ground. Well, in verse 6, God speaks about what he has seen. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Now, what are we to make of that statement? 
Is God denying what we just said? Is God saying that human achievements can become so great that nothing is impossible for us? So that if we could get all humanity together and put our minds together and work together, we could even overthrow God and rule the world in His place? No. It's not what it means. Rather, what God is pointing out here is that by uniting together, humanity is able to sin in bigger ways than they would if they were apart. Uh, In the Hebrew, the verse literally reads, nothing they propose to do will be withheld from them. Uh, In other words, one person might conceive of some grand wicked plan, but not have the, the resources, not have the ability, not have the means, so many obstacles to keep that person from that wicked plan. But you add more and more people into his company and let them work together, and suddenly those obstacles begin to fall. And so in order to restrain sin, in order to keep humanity from sinning in ways even worse than before the flood, God brings about the confusion of the languages. God says in verse 7, Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. The us here is a reference to the Trinity, the three-in-one. Um, There is a true pantheon of gods, except that it's not a whole bunch of gods. It's one God and three persons. He, they, together are the one and three, the true God. Well, in a moment, this one act of God changes everything. The people who moments before were united together in this evil, disobedient plot are now suddenly separated from one another. By their confused languages, there's now a barrier between them. They can no longer communicate. They can no longer fellowship. They can no longer work together, not only in this wicked plot, but even on figuring out how to live together. And so they begin to disperse. The great construction project is left unfinished does not mean that nothing will come of this city. Something will come of this city. The city will continue to have a major role in human history. But we're, in fact, we're told in verse 9 that this city is to be called Babel, which means place of confusion, uh, or better yet, place of mumbo-jumbo. That's pretty much what it means, place of Babel, place of confusion. The peoples were scattered throughout the earth, And they will not be gathered together again until the day when the Lord Jesus brings them together around His throne to separate the sheep from the goats. Matthew talks about this. Jesus in Matthew 24, 25, 26. In those chapters, we learn about this scene, Matthew 25 in particular, of Jesus coming back and gathering all the nations before Him and separating them sheep from goats. And then those who are His from every tongue, tribe, and nation be brought by Him into the new heavens and the new earth. Well, then we have all these other verses, this genealogy beginning in verse 10. And uh, these final verses connect all that we have seen in Genesis 1 through 11 to all that's about to come in Genesis 12 through 50. Remember, this book can be split into two sections. Primeval history, the the, the history of, of the beginning of humanity, Genesis 1 through 11, and then the focus narrows in on one man and one family. And that begins in Genesis 12 through 50 with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. And this genealogy 
connects the two. This genealogy connects this big picture of humanity that we've been learning about with the narrowing in on this one particular family that Genesis 12 through 50 is about. It's actually very, very important because there are many who still want to believe that Genesis 1 through 11 is pure fiction. That all that we have studied over all these months is mythology. Mythology meant to teach us something, but mythology nevertheless. And that it's only when we get to Genesis 12 that we begin to have actual history. But that clearly is not what the writer Moses is giving to us, is it? Because he connects these people we've been learning about. We've seen how Adam connected to Noah. We've seen how Noah connected to to Shem and Arpachshad, all down to to Eber and to Peleg and all the way down. Now we get to Terah and from Terah to Abram. And so there is a family connection. Shem was a real person. His was a real family. Abram is a real descendant of his. And their line is so important because the serpent slayer of Genesis 3.15 that we're still waiting on, well, they were still waiting on, we're not waiting on him, but we're still waiting on him in our study of Genesis, right? That this serpent slayer that they're waiting on is going to come from this family. So far we've been learning about the beginning of this original creation. But when Jesus came, he came to bring about the beginning of a new creation. We are in the opening chapters of the new creation. We're in the Genesis 1-11 through of the new creation because God is now making us new. We are a new creation and one day He's going to come and take this earth as we know it and make it new and we are going to enter into that new world. Do you know that that's where you are in history? You are in the beginning of a new... You are new creation people living on this old creation world. All that because of Christ who ultimately came from Abram who was a descendant of these. Well, let me give us some application. Um, We won't return to Genesis for several months uh, beginning the first Sunday in September. We will go to the New Testament. We will spend several months in the New Testament. Um, But we will come back in a few months and come back to the Old Testament and we will spend some time studying Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. I don't know if we'll get to Joseph then or not. Uh, We may just try and get through chapters 36 or so and uh, and then go back. So my my goal is to go back and forth. Some New Testament study, some Old Testament study to give us that balance. uh, But we will be back in Genesis. So don't forget all this that we've been learning about. It's so important to understand. But before I close, let me make some application from Genesis 11. Number one, our lives must be guided by the Word of God and not public opinion. God had said to fill the earth, yet what we find in this passage is people stirring up one another. Hey, come, let's do this. Hey, come, let's build a city. Let's build a tower for ourselves. Hey, come. And so we see this united public joining together in this wicked act as Christians Even when everyone else is determined to go another way, we must follow Christ and do what He says. The gate is wide. The way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. But the gate is narrow. And the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. So when everybody else is saying, Come, let's build us a city. Come, let's build us a tower. Come, let's do this. Are you going to be the one who steps back and says, I am not going to let my life be directed by the opinions and desires of others. 
I'm going to build my life on the sure rock of the Word of God. You and I are bombarded by peer pressure and social pressures to to act certain ways, to speak certain ways, to think certain ways. And yet we must turn to the Bible and plead with God to shape who we are so that we will walk in accordance with what is good and true rather than what is foolish and popular. Because we understand what the Bible says about human sinfulness, we need to understand We need to understand that nine out of ten times what is popular is typically going to be something that is foolish or wrong. Did you hear me? What is popular with the world is nine out of ten times going to be something that is foolish or wrong because people are naturally inclined to sinfulness. One application of this, and there are many, if you go in a bookstore and you see bestseller written on a book, be extra cautious. Because people, people don't flock to books that have truth and wisdom and godliness in them. Natural man flocks to books that tickle their ears. Natural man flocks to books that, that, that make them feel good about themselves. Now, we could apply that to music. We could apply it to movies. We could apply it all over to politics. We could apply it to all over the place. Always be careful when something is popular in society because there's usually something foolish or sinful about it. Um, not saying don't read the best-selling book. I'm just saying be extra careful. Number two, it is evil for people to unite together in sin. But conversely, it is good for people to unite together for the glory of God. This ability that people have to do more together than they would apart was originally meant by God for us as His images to do together in paradise, working together for His glory and honor. Here, because of sin and corruption, it was being used in a wicked way and God put an end to it. But just as it was evil for people to unite to do wickedness, it is good for people to unite to do God's will. In salvation, Jesus unites people and then He calls us to have fellowship together and to spur one another on towards love and good works. The people of Babel joined together and said, Come, let's make a name for ourselves. We should be uniting together and saying, Come, let's serve the Lord and exalt His name together. Number three, God is just and holy in all that He does. Rather than acting recklessly, we are told that God first surveyed what was happening in Babel before He brought an end to it. He came down and looked at the works of men before He judged them. And this is simply a reminder to us that our God does not act in ignorance or unfairness. But He first knows what we are doing and He weighs what we are doing on the scales and His punishments are always just. Number four, God allows sinners to continue in their sin for a time, but not forever. Even today, we see ungodly people doing ungodly things. They live in rebellion. They use their talents and their resources to trample God's commands 
and to leave others, lead others into sin. God allowed them to build for a time, but He did not allow them to keep building. How long will the mosques and pagan temples be allowed to stand? How long will Hollywood studios and the Playboy Mansion and other monuments to wickedness be allowed to stand in this world? Well, God will allow men to live in their wickedness for a time, but He will come and He will bring judgment. He will allow people to sin in order to give them time to repent, but He will not be patient indefinitely. Number five, if God did not act to restrain sin in this world, things would be much worse than they are. In this passage, here is this wicked deed that mankind was doing, and God says, if we allow them to continue this way, all of these obstacles to their wicked plans are going to be overcome. Therefore, out of common grace, we're going to restrain humanity by separating them into these various cultures. It's just a reminder to us of God's common grace on all humanity. That if God simply stepped back and took His hands off planet Earth, we would be so much worse than we are. The nature of sin is to become more and more vile. The nature of sin is to escalate in heinousness in an individual's life in a family's life, in a culture's life, in humanity. And if God does not have mercy, indeed, I would say, if God had not been showing common grace to humanity so far, we would already have destroyed ourselves. How easy would it be to break out into a nuclear war, right? And so it's God's common grace that we even still exist. We ought to be thankful for God's work in restraining sin. Finally, number six. Those who live for their own names will reap shame in the end. Those who live for their own names, come, let us make a name for ourselves, will reap shame in the end. What was the name that they made for themselves? Babel. Confusion mumbo-jumbo. We were created to be worshipers of the true God. We were made to exist that we might know Him, be satisfied in Him, and find our joy in praising and honoring Him forever. You and I were not wired to live for ourselves. We were wired, made to be worshipers of God. When we live for our own glory, we fall away from our purpose. We go rogue. And in the end, we stumble all over ourselves and we reap shame. Neither you nor I am worthy of worship. We are flesh and blood. We were made out of the dust of the ground. You did not even choose to exist. What about God? He isn't dependent on anybody, is He? He's always existed and forever will. Everything He needs, He has in Himself. 
He is the very definition of goodness and perfection and holiness. God alone is worthy of worship. God alone is greatly to be praised. And if we think that we are greatly to be praised, we delude ourselves. We were, exist, we were made to exist, not to make a name for us, but to exalt the name of our God. To live for our names is to count ourselves as more worthy of living and dying for than the name of God. It is a vile sin. So I close with this sentence. Know the joy of living for the name of Jesus Christ and living for the glory of the one true God. Amen? All right.